Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi there and uh, welcome back to our Gigi reading. This is Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Motongomri Boys. Today we are looking at uh, chapter 11, uh, which is No Turning Back. and This can be found at page 135 to 145. No Turning Back. James begins by quoting from Luke 9, 62. It says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. 800 years before Christ's day, the prophet Elijah was led to enlist Elisha as his fellow worker and successor. He found Elisha plowing, went uh, to him and threw his mantle over him. Elisha immediately understood that this was Elijah's way of calling him to service. So he ran off after Elijah, calling, Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll come with you. Elijah feigned indifference. Go back, he said. What have I done to you? Elisha would not put off. Elisha would not be put off. He went back to the field, slaughtered his oxen, burned his plowing equipment, to cook the meat, gave the food to his family and neighbors, and then set off to be a righteous attendant. We see this in 1 Kings 19, 19-21. Some have cited this story as one in which a servant of God put something before God's service, saying goodbye to one's parents. They have contrasted it to Jesus' words in Luke 9, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service, in the kingdom of God. The contrast seems apt because one of the persons about whom Jesus spoke these words wanted to go back and attend to family matters after which he said uh, he intended to follow Jesus. Yet an examination of the two stories shows them to be in perfect accord. In Luke 9, the prior matters about which uh, the would-be disciples were concerned were actually delaying tactics or excuses. In 1 Kings uh, 19, the actions of Elisha were a demonstration that the decision he had made was irreversible. In Elisha's case, as in the case of those who are true followers of Jesus, there was no turning back. Not only is the one who looks back and fit for kingdom service, he is not even a citizen of the kingdom. He does not qualify now or for eternity. We begin with the subtitle here. Three who faltered. Three who faltered. Christ's words about starting out as his disciple, but then turning back, were a response to the excuses raised by would-be disciples, as I said. So it is variable to look at these excuses for the types of distractions from service that Jesus says are incompatible with following him. There are three. Each illustrates what Jesus elsewhere calls the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires of other things that choke out the seed of the word and make the individual spiritually unfruitful, as we see in Mark 4, 19. The first one is physical hardships and deprivation. Physical hardships and deprivation. The first of three individuals, like the third, 
volunteered to follow Christ. He said, I will follow you wherever you go, as you see in Luke 9:57. There are many who have heard Christ or have heard about him, often persuasively, but who have never got as far as this man got in his offer to follow Jesus. Many hear the gospel and are indifferent to it. Many are moved by Christ's call, but never quite come to the place of starting after him. Not so with this individual. He had heard Jesus teach, knew who he was, and was impressed by his person and message. He wanted to follow him, but although he was sincere and was obviously moving in the right direction, he was a prime example of one who had not counted the cost of discipleship. He had not reckoned on the physical hardships and deprivation. So Jesus, who knows the heart, checked him, saying, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As seen in verse 58. The story does not tell us what happened to this man. But since Jesus wraps up the three incidences by warnings for those who might turn back from following him, we are right to suppose that this first individual did not pursue discipleship further. He was ready for a kingdom, but not a cross. He wanted direction, but not, the, not at the cost of deprivation. He was like many would-be disciples today. If a preacher comes promising a solution to life's problems, this world and heaven too, they are ready to sign on with Jesus. But speak of hardships and physical deprivations and their enthusiasm with us. Such followers do not follow Jesus to the end, and so they are not saved. We need to put down quite strongly that mere hearing of Jesus and being attracted by Jesus will save no one. Bishop J.C. Rao wrote, and I quote, The mere possession of religious privileges will save no one's soul. You may have spiritual advantages of every description. You may live in the full sunshine of the richest opportunities and means of grace. You may enjoy the best of preaching and the choicest instruction. You may dwell in the midst of light, light, knowledge, holiness, and good company. All this may be, and yet you yourself may remain unconverted and at last be lost forever. End of quote. Now this does not mean that spiritual privileges are not true privileges or that spiritual advantages are not true advantages. The Apostle Paul spoke of Israel's advantages and he said, Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, Romans 9, 4-5. But the people about whom Paul was writing were not saved, and Paul wrote that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them, as we see in verse 2. Advantages may lead to true discipleship, but they are not themselves a discipleship. There must always be a personal following of Jesus Christ to the very end. The second one is temporary but more pressing obligations. 
temporary but more pressing obligations. The second individual in Luke 9 did not volunteer to follow Jesus. He was called by him, as you see in verse 59. But he asked for delay, saying, But first, let me go and bury my father. Jesus responded, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God, as you see in verse 60. Now at first glance, this seems harsh of Jesus. Indeed, each of these calls is absolute and stringent. But the situation is probably not what it at first sounds like to us. We think of the man's father as having already died and of Jesus forbidding the prospective disciple even to attend the funeral. In light of Jewish culture of the time, it is unlikely that this was involved. If the man's father had died, he would most properly have been at home already mourning. Since he was not, it is probable that his father was merely old and that he was telling Jesus he would follow him after his father died and this prior phase of his life was thereby ended. It might be years before his father died, but he would stay home for that duration. Jesus would not accept discipleship on those terms, but demanded instead that the man come after him right then and not delay his obedience to the call. In the case of the first individual, we have an example of one who failed to count the cost. In the second case, we have one who was not willing to hate father and mother, husband or wife, children, brothers and sisters for Jesus' sake. Again, although the text does not say so specifically, we must assume that this person was unwilling to follow Jesus on his terms and so perished eternally. Procrastination is a great enemy of discipleship. The one who procrastinates has heard Jesus' call and has acknowledged the necessity of obeying it. But the other obligations press forward in his or her mind and crowd our obedience out. The individual does not intend to delay forever. Just let me attend to this small thing first, he pleads. But the delay of an hour becomes a day's delay. A day becomes a week, a week, a year. And at last, a lifetime has passed without any genuine response to Christ's call. Charles Spurgeon knew many such persons in his day and he wrote of them. And I quote, You are only young apprentices at present. And when your time is out, you think it will be early enough to attend to master of soul's interests. Or you are only journeymen at present. And when you have earned sufficient money to set you up in business, then you'll be the time to think of God. Or you are literal masters and have just begun business. You have a rising family and a, struggle, and a struggling hand. And this is your pretense for procrastination. You promise that when you have a competence and can quietly retire to a snug little villa in the country and your children have grown up, then you will repent of the past and seek God's grace for the future. All these are self-delusions of the grossest kind, for you will do no such thing. What you are today, you probably be tomorrow, and what you are tomorrow, you probably be the next day. And unless a miracle happens, that is to say, 
unless the supernatural grace of God shall make a new man of you, you'll be at your last day what you are now. Without God, without hope, and a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. Procrastination is the greatest of Satan's nests. In this, he catcheth more and weary resource than in any other. End of quote. We go to the last one, number three. Determination to set one's own terms. Determination to set one's own terms. The third of these three individuals, like the first, also volunteered to follow Jesus. But he wanted to do so on his own terms rather than on Jesus' terms. He said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to, to my family. Verse 61. On the surface, this request is the closest of the three to Elisha's request of Elijah, which Elijah approved. But here the man's error is self-evident. He called Jesus Lord. That is, he acknowledged Jesus' right of command over himself. Yet he was trying to set the terms of his discipleship. He was calling Jesus Lord, Lord, but he was not following him in that capacity. This greatly hinders and often eventually destroys many persons' discipleship. Not long ago, I was in a meeting of ministers in which one was speaking of our lack of accountability to one another. He said that, in his opinion, the problem with most so-called Christians today is that they want salvation on their own terms. They say they believe the Bible. They acknowledge Jesus' lordship but they will not make themselves accountable for how or when they actually obey him. They want to control that response. If it is convenient, they will obey. But if not, they do not want anyone telling them, what they are disob uh, telling them that they are disobedient and are therefore not actually following Jesus. I believe that this is an accurate assessment. In his classic treatment, of the course of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a careful analysis of Luke 9, 57-62, in which he examines each of these excuses. He spends most time on the third since it is most critical. Bonhoeffer thinks the third man's excuse shows two failures. First, it reveals an inadequate break with the past. When Elisha went back to burn his farm equipment and kill his oxen, it was to make that break clear and irreversible. He was a true disciple. In this case, it was the opposite. The man was clinging to old relationships and life patterns. Bonhoeffer wrote, and I quote, The first step which follows the call cuts the disciple off from his previous existence. The call to follow at once produces a new situation. To stay in the old situation makes discipleship impossible. Levi must leave the receipt of customs and Peter his nets in order to follow Jesus. The call to follow implies that there is only one way of believing on Jesus Christ and that is by leaving all and going with the incarnate Son of God. End of quote. The second failure is a lack of obedience. Obedience is essential to discipleship. 
disobedience utterly opposed to it. Yet many supposed followers think they can pick and choose where God's commands are concerned, obeying when they wish and disobeying what they wish. This is not discipleship. It is not even faith in Jesus as one's savior. Again, Bonhoeffer said that if one dismisses the word of God's commands, he will not receive his word of grace. And I quote, How can you hope to enter into communion with him when at some point in your life you are running away from him? The man who disobeys cannot believe, for only he who obeys can believe. Your orders are to perform the act of obedience on the spot. Then you will find yourself in the situation where faith becomes possible and where faith exists in the true sense of the words. End of quote. Disobedience is really looking to something in the world. And if we look back, we are not fit to be Christ's disciples. Those who look back want to go back. Jesus will take no one on those conditions. We start here with another subtitle. Remember Lord's wife. Remember Lord's wife. When Jesus said of these individuals, no one who puts his hand to the prow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God, he was not just making a statement of course. He was giving a warning. It is this warning that we must now consider. I turn here to another warning of Christ that must be taken with his words from Luke 9. This warning is found eight chapters further on in Luke's gospel, in a section dealing with Christ's second coming and the danger of being caught unprepared on that occasion. Jesus says, Remember Lord's wife, Luke 17, verse 32. This woman, wife of the Old Testament patriarch Lot, the nephew of Abraham, is the classic biblical example of one who did not press on in discipleship but rather looked back and perished. She had been living in Sodom with her husband. She had been visited by angels and had been warned, along with her husband, to flee from Sodom, which was to be destroyed. She left at angels' insistence. But on the way to the mountains, she looked back in disobedience to the angels' strict command and was turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus said to remember this woman, remember her advantages, her disobedience, and her frightful ends. We will never appreciate the force of this warning unless we realize that Lot's wife was a spiritually privileged individual. To begin with, she had a saved man as her husband. True, Lot was far from being a model disciple himself. He chose the cities of the plain with their seductive pleasures rather than the mountain country occupied by Abraham and he had he paid for it. But Peter nevertheless calls him a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of the lawless, as we see in 2 Peter 2 verse 7. Lord's wife had the advantage of a saved husband, yet perished in the spite of it. Lord's wife also had the advantage of a godly man's friendship, Abraham, to whom she was related by marriage. Abraham's faith would have been uh, no secret to her. His knowledge of the true God would have been communicated to all who are members 
of this household which Lot and his wife had been for many years. She would have participated in Abraham's worship of the true God. She would have seen evidence of God's power in delivering herself and the others who had been taken captive by Kedorlaoma and the other kings who had thrown, overthrown Sodom on an earlier occasion. Indeed, Lot's wife had even received the advantage of a special angelic visitation when the angels came to Sodom to warn her family. She was one of the small group of four whom the angels helped escape. In that day, not one person in many hundreds of thousands had such spiritual advantages. Yet in spite of her advantages, Lord's wife turned back on the way and was judged for it. What was wrong with Lord's wife? It is no mystery. First, she was disobedient to God's word through the angels. When the angels came to Sodom with the announcement that they were about to destroy the city and that Lot and his family would have to leave, the family was reluctant to go. The angels urged them, saying that they were unable to destroy the place until they were gone. Lot told his sons-in-law, Hurry and get out of the place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. The angels said, Free for your lives, do not look back and do not stop anywhere in the plain. Free to the mountains or will be swept away. As we see in Genesis 19, 14 and 17. Those commands were as urgent and explicit as any found in scripture. Yet Lot's wife disobeyed them. She began by delaying, dragging her heels. Delay then erupted into outright disobedience as she disregarded the angel's command and looked back. Second, Lot's wife disbelieved. The angels had said that unless the family fled for their lives, refusing even to look back to Sodom, they would be lost along with those living in the city. But the, the woman must have reasoned as many reason today. Surely, God cannot mean what I have just understood him to say. God will not really destroy the great city of Sodom. Or if he does, surely he will not destroy me just for turning around to see what is happening. But of course, that is exactly what God did. God said what he was about to do, and he did it, as he said. Lot's wife perished for her failure to believe the word of God. Third, Lot's wife loved the world and its pleasures more than she loved God. If you had talked to Lot's wife before the angel's visit, and had asked her of her faith in God, she would have told you that she was a believing woman. She would have said, perhaps with an air of a smug superiority, that she was not like the citizens of Sodom who had no knowledge of God and were pagans. She worshipped the God of Abraham. She wanted to serve him. She might even have told you that she was doing in Sodom. She was living... Uh, sorry. She might even have told you what she was doing in Sodom is to witness to the claims of this true God. She would have been one of the better people of Sodom. Still, her heart was not with God. It was with Sodom and its pleasures. Her true affections were revealed in the crisis of God's judgment. Bishop Rao has a magnificent sermon on this text entitled, A Woman to be Remembered in which he particularly underscores 
the danger of worldliness. He speaks of thousands who have begun well and run for a season, but who turn back, not because they have found the Bible to be untrue or Jesus to have failed to keep his word, but because they have become infected with the love of the world and so serve it rather than the world's master. It is true of the children of religious families. It is true of married people. It is true of many young women and young men. It is true of communicants, even of clergymen. They begin well, but zeal for Christ grows cold, and at last they fall away. Bishop Ryle wrote, and I quote, Beware of ever supposing that you may go too far in religion and of secretary trying to keep in with the world. I want no reader of this paper to become a hermit, a monk, or a nun. I wish everyone to do his real duty in that state of life to which he is called. But I do urge on every professing Christian who wishes to be happy the immense importance of making no compromise between God and the world. Do not try to drive a hard bargain as if you wanted to give Christ as literal of your heart as possible and to keep as much as possible of the things of this life. Beware lest you overreach yourself and end by losing all. Love Christ with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Seek first the kingdom of God and believe that then all other things shall be added unto you. Take heed that you do not prove a copy of the character that John, Bun John Bunyan draws, Mr. Facing Both Ways. For your happiness' sake, for your usefulness' sake, for your safety's sake, for your soul's sake, beware of the sin of Lord's wife. Oh, it is a solemn saying of our Lord Jesus. No man, having put his hand to the prow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9:62. We finish with a final subtitle here. Onward, 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 onward. The greater part of this chapter has been negative, warning those who are contemplating Christ's service that, they are, that the mere setting out is not sufficient. There must be perseverance. It is he who stands firm to the end who is saved, as we see in Matthew 10, 22. But I do not want to end there. I want to end on the character of those who are saved, those of violence, who Jesus says, lay hold of the kingdom I will not be denied until they possess it, as we see in Matthew 11, verse 12. It is said of Calvinists that they undercut all motivation for true godly living and evangelism. For, the arguments goes, if God ordains all things, there is no obligation for me or anyone else to do anything. If God wants something to happen, it will happen. If, if he does not, it will not happen. There is nothing for me to do. I will sit back and let God work. I will enjoy myself and let it happen. That is not the way it is. It is true that in a way we do not fully understand that God does order the working out of all things. If he did not, he would not be God. He would be the victim of circumstances other than being in charge of them. God is in charge of circumstances. But when God orders things, he does so through means. 
and one of these means is the fervent perseverance, a persistent activity of those whose lives have been transformed by the utterly divine work of regeneration. Jesus told the educated Nicodemus that he must be born again, as you see in John 3, verse 3 and verse 7. If he was not, he could not even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. Regeneration is from above. However, once the work of regeneration has taken place, the individual is no longer as he was. He is now Christ's man or woman. He is one who sees the kingdom and presses with all his might to enter it. What is the character of those who put their hands to the prow and who do not look back? It is the character of those who have an unquenchable thirst for righteousness and who will not turn back until their thirst is satisfied. They have a hunger for spiritual things. They can never seem to get enough of God's word. It is their chief delight all the day. They are sheep who were lost but who have now heard their Savior's voice and are comforted by no other. They were blind but they, but they have been made to see. Their eyes are filled with visions of glory yet to come. They are pilgrims whose eyes are on the heavenly city. They are virgins whose lamps are carefully tended and filled to overflowing. They are servants who are using torrents given by their master to the greatest effect. They do not bury them. They invest their assets in God's service. They are people who feed the hungry. They give drink to the thirsty. They shelter to the stranger, clothes to the naked, care to the sick, and comfort to the one who has been imprisoned. They are branches who bear fruit. They are wells that do not run dry. They are runners who do not weary in the race. They are servants whom the Lord finds watching when he returns. Our other race is no sprint. It is a marathon. It is a marathon that begins with our conversion and carries on to the moment of our death or Christ's return. It is the hardest challenge we'll ever face, but it is one we face gladly. For we face it in the power of him who has promised to be with us to the very end and who has said that, he, that we will never perish. No one will ever snatch us from his hand. And of that chapter. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church Podcast. For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Gracepoint Church.